happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel, serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Back at the end of 2023, I had... uh, more mammograms than has been typical for me so far in my life. Uh, I know going back for additional imaging is a routine experience for some folks, and it can be really scary for me. This was a new experience. Ultimately, everything was fine. Uh, But of course, all of that made me think about where this all came from. And we have also gotten some requests for a history of mammography over the years. While I was working on this, I was astonished at how much of it happened during Holly's and my lifetime. Like I had sort of imagined my grandmothers going to get a baseline mammogram in some kind of old-timey mammography machine in the 50s or early 60s There were not even old-timey mammography machines at that point. Uh, And something I want to be super clear about from the top of the show is that we are going to be talking about some of the uh, recommendations on who should get a mammogram and when, and some questions and controversies about mammography and other kinds of breast imaging. This is not medical advice. Holly and I are not doctors. Please do not especially avoid getting a mammogram based on our summary of debates about it from the 70s or whatever. Like, no, that's for a doctor discussion. Yeah. <laughs> they are there are still debates. There are they are ongoing. The this uh but my advice is I know this is hard especially in the United States, but try to f- find a provider you trust and Discuss it with them. Yes. The history of mammography begins with the discovery of X-rays. In November of 1895, Wilhelm Conrad Röntgen was experimenting with a Crookes tube. 
This is a type of cathode ray tube named for Sir William Crookes, who was one of several people to develop similar tubes in the 1860s and 70s. This was a vacuum-sealed container made of glass with electrodes allowing a current to pass through it. That would cause the tube to glow. Uh, that is not the most precise explanation of what this was, but I feel like we're not a physics podcast, so it's okay. Röntgen's discovery is often described as accidental, but he was intentionally experimenting to try to figure out if the Crookes tube was emitting something other than visible light. He had placed an opaque wrapper around the tube, and when he started the current to make sure that wrapper was blocking out all the light, some barium platinocyanide on a piece of cardboard several feet away started to glow. So you could describe that one moment as an accidental discovery because he was basically checking on his setup when he noticed this glow, but it was in the context of a deliberate investigation. He had been studying light phenomena for a while. The accident was that he got data back sooner than he expected. Right. <laughs> Soon, Röntgen realized that whatever the cathode ray tube was emitting could affect a photographic plate. In addition to passing through the shroud he was using to block the visible light, these mysterious rays seemed to pass right through various substances, including a plywood door. But they were blocked by a strip of beading that had been stuck to the door with lead. When he put his wife's hand in front of the photographic plate, the resulting image clearly showed her bones and the rings she was wearing. That image, of course, is often described as the first X-ray. Röntgen reported his discovery at the end of December using the term X-rays because the nature of these rays was, at the time, unknown. Today, we know that X-ray radiation is part of the electromagnetic spectrum with a higher frequency than visible or ultraviolet light. By mid-January 1896, so almost immediately after Röntgen made his announcement, doctors and researchers were finding medical and dental uses for X-rays, like producing images of broken bones, foreign objects in the body, and teeth. Most soft tissue doesn't show up well on an x-ray, but soon doctors had figured out that they could x-ray the digestive system if the patient ingested a contrast agent, like barium sulfate. They also figured out that controlled exposure to x-rays could treat certain cancers. Röntgen was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics for his discovery in 1901, and the field of radiology is also called Röntgenology. For years, X-ray images were also known as Röntgen photographs. But of course, at this point, people didn't have a clear sense of how long exposure should be or how best to position people or the damaging effects of too much radiation exposure. Accounts from the first years after Röntgen's discovery describe exposure times of 30 minutes or an hour, or in the case of William Levy in July of 1896, a whole series of exposures lasting from 8 in the morning until 10 at night. This was done at his requests. They were trying to locate a bullet that had been in his head since being shot by a bank robber 10 years before. Although doctors did obtain a good image of the bullet, Levy was one of many patients who was harmed by this radiation exposure. His whole head became blistered and swollen, he lost all of his hair on one side, and his lips cracked and bled. 
Other patients also experienced things like burns and hair loss, and a number of practitioners who were exposed to X-ray radiation over the course of years developed cancer later in their lives. While there were medical uses for X-rays pretty much immediately after their discovery, it took some time before researchers tried to X-ray breast tissue. The first person known to have done this is Albert Solomon, who was working at the University Hospital in Berlin. He studied tissue from 3,000 breasts, and some accounts that I read described this as coming from patients who had had mastectomies. Others described it as tissue that had come from the morgue. Uh, I could not find a scan of this publication anywhere in any language. I am not clear on the details. Solomon compared the tissue to the images shown in the x-rays, and in 1913, he published a paper in German titled Contributions to the Pathology and Clinical Medicine of Breast Cancer, and it describes how Röntgen photographs could show the existence and spread of breast cancer, as well as revealed the presence of cancer that couldn't yet be felt through touch. Although soft tissue doesn't show up well on an x-ray, breast cancer usually has a different density than the tissue around it. And some cancers also cause microcalcifications or calcium deposits. All of that is visible on an x-ray. To be clear, these were not very clear x-rays at all, but they were there. Solomon's work was interrupted by World War I, during which he worked as a doctor with the German military. He returned to the hospital after the war was over, But in 1933, as the Nazis came to power, he was removed from his position because he was Jewish. After the November pogrom, also called Kristallnacht, he was interned at a concentration camp, and the family fled Germany after his release. His daughter, Charlotte, was sent to live with grandparents in southern France, but she was captured and killed at Auschwitz. Solomon and his wife were interned a second time, but escaped, and they survived the rest of the war by hiding in the Netherlands. They lived in Amsterdam after the war was over, and Solomon went into private practice. He had had to recertify in medicine because his German credentials were not recognized there. Some other researchers worked with x-rays and breast tissue during these years, but not until almost 15 years after Solomon first published. The first person known to take an x-ray of a living person's breast was German surgeon Otto Kleinschmidt in 1927. He was working under the direction of surgeon Edwin Payer. In 1930, radiologist Stafford Leek Warren at the University of Rochester in New York published on a technique that he had developed for compiling x-rays taken from two different angles to get a stereoscopic view of the breast. He had patients lie on their side with their arm raised above their head, sort of stretching out the tissue a bit. This stereoscopic view offered a somewhat more detailed and accurate look at density changes within the breast. Warren took x-rays of the breasts of 119 patients who had already been diagnosed with some kind of breast issue and were scheduled for surgery. Using those images, he concluded that 58 of them had breast cancer. After their surgeries, he compared those results to the breast tissue that had been removed and confirmed that 54 of those patients did have cancer. Four other patients had breast cancer that Warren had not detected through his x-rays. Yeah, so basically there were four patients who he thought had breast cancer but did not, and another four that he had not thought had breast cancer but did. Other patients in Warren's study, rather than having had cancer, had 
chronic mastitis or benign tumors, abscesses, some other issue that was not cancer. And Warren's paper detailed what these looked like in the x-rays. This was pretty impressive considering that the images in Warren's x-rays were not very clear or detailed. Like, if you look at a mammogram today and you don't know how to read it, I would say it can look not very detailed to you. These were very blobby, like uh, just a lot of white blobs and vague shapes. Uh, A year after this, German researcher Walter Vogel published a paper on using x-rays to differentiate between different types of tumors, including how to tell benign breast lesions from malignant ones. The term mammography was coined in 1937 by nymphist Frederick Hicken, a physician and surgeon in Salt Lake City, Utah. His article, Mammography, the Röntgenographic Diagnosis of Breast Tumors by Means of Contrast Media, was published in the journal Surgery, Gynecology, and Obstetrics. He was one of several people in the 1930s and 40s who were looking at the use of contrast media to get better images in breast x-rays. Contrast-enhanced mammography is still around today, and it's typically used after someone has already had a mammogram without contrast. Like, if that mammogram showed something that required further investigation or to monitor progress during breast cancer treatment, especially in people who can't get an MRI for some reason. We will look into how mammography evolved in the 1940s and 50s after a sponsor break. Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit tomboyx.com. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel 
for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. If you have never had a mammogram, today there is a machine involved one that is made specifically for mammography, and it compresses the breast. But the researchers we've been talking about so far were using basic x-ray equipment that had not been made specifically for breast imaging, and they also weren't compressing the breast tissue to x-ray it. The first person known to compress the breast to try to get a better image of it was Raoul LeBourne, who was a radiologist from Uruguay in 1949. He found that compressing the breast produced clearer images and made it easier to distinguish between cancerous and benign masses. He also found that using a double emulsion film improved the image quality even further. He described the presence of microcalcifications that could be used to help identify certain cancers. LeBourne started uh, publishing his findings on all this in 1951. LeBourne wasn't using equipment made specifically for mammograms, though. Basically, the person stood in front of a table that was about breast height. The breast to be x-rayed was placed on the table with the photographic film in an envelope under it. Then there was a cone. The x-ray emitter was at the little end, and the big end was placed on the breast, applying what he described as a slight pressure. LeBourne used a small cone when a specific area of the breast needed to be imaged and a large cone to image the whole breast. One of the other people working on breast imaging in the 1950s was Robert Egan, who started his work during his residency in radiology. Over the course of his research, he concluded that mammography could use lower power x-rays than other diagnostic imaging did, and that radiologists could adjust the power based on breast size and density. He pinpointed a more sensitive X-ray film that could provide more detailed images and intensifying screens that could reduce blurring. He also suggested the use of cardboard cutouts to position the breast for the best view. Like several other researchers before him, Egan x-rayed the breasts of people who had been diagnosed with cancer or another breast disease, comparing the x-ray image to the diagnosis they had already received. He also compared the x-rays of that breast to the patient's other presumably healthy breast. He sometimes detected tumors in the other breast that the patient and doctor had not been aware of. Egan's initial focus had been on helping doctors visualize known or suspected cancers in order to make diagnoses and treatment plans. But his research also suggested that mammography could be used as a screening tool. Between 1956 and 1959, he and his colleagues at MD Anderson Cancer Center imaged the breasts of 1,000 patients who didn't have obvious signs of breast cancer. 
And in 238 of them, mammography revealed a previously undetected tumor. Most of these tumors were so small that they could not be felt at all. One of them was only 8 millimeters in diameter. Egan became a proponent of the idea of screening mammograms and later traveled all around the country training other radiologists to do them. There was even a national study to confirm that his techniques could be successfully taught to other people who could then get similar results in the mammograms they performed. Egan was not the only one advocating for screening mammograms around this time. Others were Jacob Gershon Cohen and Helen Ingleby. All through the 1950s, Gershon Cohen and Ingleby collaborated on research related to the breast and breast imaging, including various ways that different pathologies could appear in an X-ray. And they also documented normal changes to the breast due to factors like menstruation, lactation, and age, which were also visible on X-rays. They published numerous papers together and co-authored a book called Comparative Anatomy, Pathology, and Rontgenology of the Breast. That was published in 1960. So we'll take a moment here to note that we're about halfway through this episode on mammography, and we have only just now gotten to a woman researcher. At this point, there were not many women doctors. There were even fewer women in specialized fields like radiology or oncology. We have a previous episode on Elizabeth Blackwell, who was the first woman in the U.S. to earn an M.D., which had happened in 1849. Helen Ingleby had attended the London Medical School for Women, which was England's first medical school that enrolled women, and one of its founders was Elizabeth Blackwell. Ingleby was also one of the St. George's Four, which was a nickname for the four first women to begin studying medicine, at St. George's University of London, which was in 1915. Ingleby was the first woman to qualify for the Bachelor of Medicine degree at the university. The lack of women in medicine absolutely affected the field of mammography and the understanding of breast cancer and just breast health in general. There's still so much cultural baggage around breasts and around gender, and this was even more true in the 1950s and 60s. A lot of male doctors were uncomfortable examining women patients' breasts, and a lot of women were uncomfortable being examined by male doctors or even talking to a male doctor or anyone else about a concern with their breasts. Robert Egan was known to complain about the fact that cultural taboos and hang-ups about breasts were getting in the way of medicine, and some of his colleagues gave him crude nicknames because of his focus on mammography. During the research for this episode, it also really stood out to me that Helen Ingleby had been a collaborator on work that really helped document the many ways that a person's breasts can change due to very ordinary things like menstruation and aging, with all of those changes being like in the umbrella of normal. I feel like she is the original consultant of like, no, yeah, that happens. No, <laughs> yeah. that's that's not really normal. Yeah, that happens all the yeah. time. <laughs> Although Egan, Gershon Cohen, and Ingleby were all vocal proponents of mammography, not a lot of radiologists were actually performing mammograms by 1960. The 1960 annual oration before the Massachusetts Medical Society, which was published under the title The Role of Diagnostic Rontgenology in Medicine in the New England Journal of Medicine, does not mention mammography or the breast at all. Egan had published his mammography technique by then, but most practitioners still didn't know about it yet. There was also no dedicated equipment to make x-raying the breast easier and more consistent. 
Even formal research into mammography was still being done with X-ray equipment that was made for other purposes. And the radiologists who were X-raying the breast were mostly working with patients who were already showing signs of breast cancer or some other disorder or disease of the breast. This was not usually a way to spot previously undetected problems. Although there were anecdotes about people whose tumors had been discovered on a breast X-ray, there had not been any controlled studies to determine whether mammograms could be used as an effective screening tool. This started to shift later in the 60s, in part because of the work of radiologist Philip Strax. His wife, Bertha Goldberg Strax, had died of breast cancer in 1947, at the age of just 39, and that led him to focus his career on the detection and treatment of breast cancer. In 1963, he began collaborating with Sam Shapiro, Director of Research and Statistics at the Health Insurance Plan of Greater New York, or HIP or HIP, and Surgeon Louis Venet on a large-scale, randomized trial into the efficacy of mammography as a screening tool. Uh, I'm just going to admit I did not go down the rabbit hole of whether people say this HIP or HIP. We're just going to call it HIP. Participants in this study were HIP members, and sometimes this trial is called the HIP study. It involved 62,000 women between the ages of 40 and 64. Half were given annual examinations that involved an interview, a breast exam, and a mammogram. The other half received their usual medical care without this annual screening. Although, if their doctor gave them a breast exam or ordered them to get a mammogram for some reason, they were not prevented from getting one. They just were not having a dedicated annual screening. This was a three-year study, and initially, the death rate from breast cancer was reported as 40% lower in the group that had received the annual breast exams. That number was later lowered to 30%, but that was still dramatic. Patients in the screening group who were diagnosed with breast cancer over the course of the study were also far more likely to show no signs of the disease in their lymph nodes, meaning their cancer was probably locally confined to the breast when it was detected. The study also acknowledged some of the realities of the medical system and getting access to medical care in the United States. Like, these were all folks who were part of a health insurance plan that is a specific population of people. At the same time, many of the hospitals in New York where mammograms were being done were not convenient to the women who were enrolled in this study. So the team basically turned a van into a mobile mammography center and they drove it to the places where the women worked so that they could be screened on their lunch break. Even with that effort, though, a significant number of participants in this study didn't return for their follow-up exams. That reduced the number of people who participated in the study all the way to the end. Preliminary results were published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1966, and another article followed in 1971. And overall, using mammograms to screen people for breast cancer seemed like a clear success. Philip Strax joined Robert Egan, Jacob Gershon-Cohen, and Helen Ingleby in advocating for screening mammograms. Another big breakthrough came about in 1965 in Strasbourg, France, when radiologist Charles Gross worked with Compagnie Générale de Radiologie to develop the CGR sonograph. This was the first device specifically made to x-ray the breast. 
Gross was a vocal advocate for breast cancer screening as well, and there are a number of sources that describe him and Philip Egan as the two people within the medical community who really did the most to push the idea of screening mammograms into the mainstream. Of course, there were also developments that were happening from outside the medical community. In the U.S., for example, President Richard Nixon announced a war on cancer in 1971. A year later, the National Cancer Institute and the American Cancer Society teamed up to launch the Breast Cancer Detection Demonstration Project, or BCDDP. The American Cancer Society was heavily invested in this. During the 1950s and 60s, the American Cancer Society had pushed for routine cervical cancer screening using pap tests, and death rates from cervical cancer were declining. It was hoped that routine breast screenings would have a similar impact on deaths from breast cancer. The BCDDP offered five years of free annual mammograms to women over the age of 35, That was at 29 screening centers located in 27 cities around the U.S. More than 280,000 women were screened at one of these centers between 1973 and 1980. That exceeded the project's initial goal by more than 10,000. Interest in screenings also surged in the U.S. in the fall of 1974 after Betty Ford, wife of President Gerald Ford, and Margaretta Rockefeller, known as Happy, wife of Nelson Rockefeller, each announced that they had been diagnosed with breast cancer. Although neither of their cancers had been initially detected in a mammogram, both underwent surgery and survived, and their public acknowledgement of what had happened helped dispel some of the stigma and secrecy surrounding the disease. It was also evolving that breast cancer was a survivable and even curable disease, especially if people caught it early, and this was feeding into that as well. Things moved a bit more slowly in other parts of the world. For example, in Europe in the 1970s, only Sweden and Scotland conducted trials of screening mammograms. In Japan, as another example, ultrasound was already being used for breast imaging, so there just really wasn't a big focus on seeing how mammography would work there. There were also doubts and controversies pretty much right away. Although the HIP study had shown a clear reduction in mortality in the group that had regular breast exams, only 44 cases of breast cancer had been found only through mammography over the course of that study. In many other cases, the patient's medical history, physical exam, or interview had already suggested the possibility of cancer. One of the people to publicly criticize the idea of screening mammograms was John C. Baylor, who was statistician with the National Cancer Institute. He published an article called Mammography, a Contrary View in the Annals of Internal Medicine in January of 1976. This is one of the moments where I was like, this was after I was born. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, His criticisms included the fact that many of the early cancers that were being diagnosed were very slow-growing masses that might not ever reach a point where they were a risk to the patient's life. He also expressed concerns that the radiation exposure involved with a mammogram could contribute to breast cancers later in life. I'll pause to say the amount of radiation exposure is less now (laughs) than it was in 1976. 
He argued that the government should have been focusing its efforts on further randomized controlled trials, including trials specifically looking at the question of whether screening mammograms were worthwhile in patients under the age of 50, and studies on more diverse groups of people rather than a demonstration project like the BCDDP. Baylor initially criticized all screening mammograms, but eventually really focused his attention on the ones performed on women under the age of 50. The same year that Baylor published this article, the American Cancer Society started recommending mammography for early breast cancer detection. We'll talk more about that after a sponsor break. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. The American Cancer Society had started educational campaigns recommending that women examine their own breasts for signs of cancer in the 1930s and 40s. That, plus the increased use of screening mammograms in the late 60s and 70s, meant that 
more people were being diagnosed with breast cancer earlier than they might have been otherwise. But for decades, the standard treatment for breast cancer in the U.S. and much of Europe had involved a radical mastectomy. This surgery was developed by William Stewart Halstead all the way back in 1882, building on the work of earlier doctors. This included the removal of the breast and adjacent parts of the lymphatic system and the pectoralis major muscle. That's a major surgery, but when Halstead developed it, most breast cancers were detected when tumors were large enough to be obvious and had started to spread beyond the breast. But at least in theory, cancers that were discovered earlier might not need such a broad response. This led to questions of whether mammograms were going to lead to people having major surgery that they didn't actually need. So this ties in to the history of breast cancer treatment, which, of course, could be a whole separate topic. The first chemotherapy drugs were developed in the 1940s and 50s. As we said earlier, experiments in radiotherapy as a cancer treatment had started almost immediately after the discovery of x-rays. Surgeon John Madden modified Halstead's methods for the radical mastectomy in 1972 with Madden's techniques preserving the pectoral muscles. Oncologist Umberto Veronesi also promoted a more conservative surgery described as a quadrantectomy, combining that with radiotherapy. Studies comparing the efficacy of radical mastectomies with Veronesi's method started in Milan in 1973, And this was part of a whole process of figuring out how to successfully treat breast cancers that were detected earlier without over-treating them, like without giving people a more intense treatment than they actually needed. Complicating all of this was the fact that screening mammograms were identifying growths that were ambiguous. In other words, it wasn't obvious whether they were or were not cancerous. While the BCDDP was ongoing, a preliminary report suggested that 66 of 506 pathological specimens collected so far had not actually contained any sign of cancer nor carcinoma in situ. Today, carcinoma in situ is sometimes called stage zero cancer, and it involves precancerous cells that have not spread, which may or may not become cancerous. Of those 66 specimens that didn't have any evidence of cancerous or precancerous cells, 53 had led the patient to undergo some type of mastectomy. The researchers stressed that the mammograms were not to blame for this, that other doctors had performed those biopsies, made those diagnoses, and recommended those surgical treatments. But all of this added to the ongoing questions about the idea of overtreatment. With all these kinds of questions in play, and others, various states and the U.S. federal government started working to regulate mammography. Between 1986 and 1992, a number of laws were passed requiring things like dedicated mammography machines at hospitals and inspections on those machines. The U.S. passed the Mammography Quality Standards Act in 1992, which was meant to help ensure the safety and efficacy of mammography, including making sure the amount of radiation patients were exposed to was low. The American College of Radiology also developed the Breast Imaging and Reporting Data System, or BIRADS, in 1993 to provide standardized ways to describe and report mammogram results. 
Today, the BIRADS Atlas includes guidelines for multiple types of breast imaging, including mammography, ultrasound, and MRI. There were numerous advances in mammography technology and methods in the late 1980s and 1990s. Digital mammography was introduced in 2001, and today most mammograms are digital, so radiologists can see the images instantly rather than waiting for films to be developed. Digital mammography also tends to be more accurate in people over the age of 50, although the accuracy is about the same in people younger than that. Digital tomosynthesis, or 3D digital mammography, was introduced in 2011. And there are other methods for breast imaging as well. Some examples include magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, ultrasound mammography with contrast, which we mentioned earlier, positron emission mammography, and breast-specific gamma imaging. A lot of these today are used after a screening mammogram has revealed something that needs further evaluation or after somebody has been diagnosed with breast cancer to better visualize the tumor and to monitor progress during treatment. In more recent years, there have also been recommendations for mammography to be paired with automated whole breast ultrasound in people with dense breasts. And at this point, it's usually recommended in addition to, not instead of, a mammogram. But there's also an overall higher false positive rate for breast ultrasounds, including automated whole breast ultrasound, than there is for mammograms. Some of the concerns about mammography that were raised in the wake of the HIP study continue to be debated today. Like, the HIP study had shown clear evidence that routine breast cancer screening could reduce the number of deaths from breast cancer in people over the age of 50. But there wasn't clear evidence for women between the ages of 40 and 50. Screening mammograms really didn't seem to make much of a difference in this age group. If you're in that age bracket, which I am, and you've gotten a mammogram, you may have gotten results describing your breasts as dense. Basically, younger breasts contain a lot more connective tissue and other structures that show up on a mammogram, and that can make it harder to spot small tumors. But older breasts usually have less connective tissue and more fat, so tumors stand out more on a mammogram. In general, breast cancer risk also increases with age, so what's the right age for a person to start having mammograms? Guidance on this has changed repeatedly since the years of the HIP study, including an incredibly controversial recommendation by the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force in 2009. That recommendation was that women between the ages of 40 and 49 not be routinely screened. There is still so much debate about the age at which people should start getting mammograms and how often they should get them after that point. And there's often a lack of consensus among different organizations and governing bodies about what those recommendations should be. Recommendations for transgender and non-binary people are even more scattered and contradictory and are based on just really limited data. I read through these and I found them very confusing. Uh, and this is for, you know, a, a community of people, trans and non-binary people, already often having a really high bar to getting compassionate medical care at all, uh, just making it more complicated and based on limited data. Uh, a cynical way to look at this debate about when and how often people should get mammograms, especially in places like the United States where we don't have universal health care is that this is all about money and what insurance companies are willing to pay for, especially when it comes to people under the age of 50. 
There definitely are arguments about whether routine mammograms are the cost-effective way to detect signs of breast cancer. I read some of those papers. I found them irritating. Uh, According to the National Cancer Institute, more than 75% of women in the U.S. between the ages of 50 and 74 have had a mammogram within the last two years. But more than half of breast cancers are discovered by the patients themselves or their partners, not from a mammogram. So this is like a question of like, wouldn't it be cheaper to just make sure everybody's getting regular physical exams? Uh, I find that, it to, I'm like, this is it cheaper? I find that to be a frustrating way to look at it. I have a question about that that we can table till Friday. Until Friday, sure. Yes. <laughs> But beyond all of that, there are real questions about the efficacy of mammography as a screening tool, especially in people under the age of 50. As we said earlier, it's not just about the fact that a higher breast density can make small tumors harder to see. There are also questions around the risks of false positive and overtreatment as a result of earlier annual mammograms. It's estimated that over the course of 10 screenings, roughly half of patients in the U.S. will experience a false positive, and roughly 20% of patients in Europe. And there are still lingering questions about overtreatment and whether very small growths seen on mammograms need to be treated or would ever jeopardize the patient's life in any way. So we can't speak from experience about other parts of the world. Holly and I live in the United States. But here, there are huge disparities in who has access to screening mammograms including who has access to the newer technologies like 3D mammography. And these disparities are often compounded in every step of the process. So a person who can't get an appointment or can't get an appointment at a place that has the most up-to-date equipment or can't afford a mammogram at all or feels unwelcome at the doctor due to factors like medical racism and fat phobia and transphobia They're going to have these same exact issues again when it comes to follow-ups if additional imaging is needed. Treatment can also be incredibly expensive for breast cancer, even in people who have insurance. And so all of this contributes to racial and economic disparities in breast cancer detection rates and survival rates for breast cancer, with Black women in the U.S. in particular being a lot just disproportionately more likely to die from the disease. Uh, I know that is a kind of dire place to leave off the episode. The grim denouement of the episode. Yeah, I didn't feel like I could just leave that out. Do you have less grim listener mail? Do I have much less grim listener mail? Fabulous. Uh, This listener mail came from Dave, uh, and Dave's subject line is just Assassin's Creed Origins. Uh, Dave wrote, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I guess I have a PhD in the show since I've been listening to the podcast from the very start. I've loved the many evolutions of the show over the years, and I'm grateful for all the hard work you put into it. Naturally, I've been tempted to write several times, especially since my hometown of St. Catharines, Ontario has appeared in a number of episodes, but I never felt I had something worth sharing, well, at least until you talked about Assassin's Creed during the Banu Musa episode. You touched upon how Ubisoft tries to add some level of historical accuracy to the backgrounds in the game. What you may not realize is that historians and museums have taken note of that. I volunteer at the Nelson Atkins Museum in Kansas City. It's a world-class museum, and I love giving tours and interacting with guests. Before the pandemic, we had an episode on Nefertari. 
It was an amazing collaboration with the Museo Egizio in Turin, Italy. Featured prominently in the exhibit were animated outtakes from an educational version of Assassin's Creed Origins. You can find these online at uh, Ubisoft's website, and there's a link to that. Uh, Needless to say, it was very cool to have these recreated sites next to actual artifacts, and people love it. So I hope you enjoy that tidbit and don't get stuck in the rabbit hole of these Assassin's Creed Discovery Tours. Here's my pet tax. What follows is an adorable black kitty cat asleep on a cream-colored carpet. Cricket is a manx. This breed typically do not have tails. She's got a lot of personality and wants a lot of attention. Although she refuses to be a lap cat, she wants her tribute on her terms. Keep up the great work. Sincerely, Dave. Um, I love this kitty cat. I used to have a manx, and I loved him desperately. And it was like living with a, a really fabulous drag queen. Oh, yeah. Who would look you up and down and be like, you're wearing that today? Like, just yeah. the goofiest, sweetest, but also slightly attitudinous. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I knew that these Discovery Tours existed in the Assassin's Creed games. I have never actually checked any of them out on my games. I see them there in the menu. I see that there are achievements for doing them. I have not actually done any of them. I did not know, though that they were also used in museums and educational uh, centers to, like, uh, add another element to uh, the educational stuff. I think that is pretty cool. So thanks so much for this email, Dave. If you'd like to write to us, we're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. We are on social media at Missing History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter. It's not even called Twitter anymore. I don't know why I even say it that. It is to me. I think it's always Twitter in my heart. I refuse to acknowledge. <laughs> uh, and you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app or wherever else you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net.